So, EJ, we're here finishing our, well, I guess we have one more. We're not really finishing it, but. We do. Don't shut us down yet. We're not, we're not done. This has been great, though. It is our horror miniseries, Women in Horror, Not Your Scream Queen. And today we are talking about The Babadook, which is, for me, it's been the scariest so far. But I'm really excited because we've played around with the idea of bringing in guests before and uh, this time, I have a friend, Erica Waters, an author. She wrote Ghostwood Song. And when we decided we were going to talk about the Babadook, she came to mind because her awesome story is about bluegrass and ghosts and grief. And it just felt like a different exploration of similar themes to this movie. And so I'm Really excited to have you with us, Erica. Oh, Welcome. thanks so much. I'm, I'm really <laughs> excited to come hang out with you guys and talk about a, a very scary horror movie. <laughs> it was scary. So I, I don't know about you, EJ, but I feel like for me, this was the scariest one so far. I was like, oh, crap. There were parts of it where it was a little cheesy, but there were parts where I was legitimately... Yeah, I think this was the most terrified. classic like monsters coming to get you film in this collection that we've gotten I expected it actually to be even worse so I ended up like I got to the end and I was like oh okay I made it but um you know I was traumatized by the ring in my teen years and never fully recovered so compared to the ring as a teenager this was not as bad but it was definitely very monstrous and that Babadook creature is quite a thing well I feel like the way and we'll get into it like taking turns talking about it but I feel like the way they wrapped it up at the end I was like oh like I didn't finish scared like once Mm -hmm. it kind of made sense what it was about I was like I got it I got it can I spoil this right off the bat go for it because okay so right at the end they have that whole wrap-up thing with the lady next door and it turns out that this entire time it has been building up to the anniversary of her husband's death by this terrible car crash and so the babadook is basically this grief monster that's coming for her but there's never any way to defeat it or overcome it or anything it's in their basement for like forever. As they say throughout the film, you can't get rid of the Babadook. And so <laughs> it just sits in their basement forever. And they feed it what? Worms? Grief eats worms? And this is the solution to this entire thing. Like, what happens if they move? Does it come with them or does it stay with the house? How do you explain this to someone who's taking your house? Oh, just leave some worms in the basement. <laughs> Homeowners Association. <laughs> well, I I feel you. I feel you. But as someone, I had a different takeaway. And, like, we're going to have to let Erica talk. <laughs> Sorry, Erica. Different from feeding grief worms. Okay. Well, as somebody, so I was like, I mean, you know, at the risk of sounding like a 17-year-old stoner, I was like, that's deep, man. Like, <laughs> as somebody that... <laughs> Suffers, like some suffers isn't the right word. I don't suffer. I've got it pretty great. Um, someone that deals with mental illness on the regular with depression and PTSD, I was like, no, you can't get rid of the Babadook. Mm. The Babadook is with you forever. And if it wants worms, damn it, you give it worms. <laughs> Whatever you got to do to keep it in the basement so you're not screaming at everybody and losing your damn mind. Um, so that's a good, like, jumping off point. Erica, do you have any thoughts on it right off the bat? You know, 
I actually didn't find the Babadook himself that scary, which surprised me because I, I am a wimp. Like, I can write scary books, I can read scary books, but I don't watch a lot of scary movies. Like, because if I see something disturbing, it's in here forever. Like, it is forever with me. So I don't watch a ton of horror movies. And so I expected to just spend the entire movie just in absolute terror. Um, but to me, the Babadook himself wasn't that scary. She was scary. Amelia was very frightening to me. And, and that was almost from the beginning. Like, you sensed that there was something wrong with her, that, um, and, and, and a lot of the aesthetics, you know, her dress, her long white nightgown. You got the sense that she was barely hanging on, and she's responsible for this little person. And you're just like, this is a house of cards. This is going to fall apart. Yes, exactly. And this little person who himself is struggling and barely holding it together. And so just immediately starting the movie, I thought, okay, I, I see where the f most frightening moments of this movie are going to come. And like, yes, the Babadook did have some really like moments when he was terrifying. But to me, just watching her unspool over the course of the movie was scarier than anything. It was kind of a slow burn. Like, there were there were definitely some jump scares, like, some classic jump scares. And, oh, my God, when the Babadook was, like, on the ceiling and she's in bed and it's, like, crawling and then it, like, falls in her mouth or something. I was like, oh, shit. But um, <laughs> I agree. And, like, it, it as a mom, like, the moments where she is just clearly losing it, like, she is not doing well. I was, like, I don't know. I was, I was drawing all kind of correlations. I was like, that's our grief. That's our, like before I, the first time I'd seen it, this was a rewatch for me. So it was a little, it was kind of interesting to do a rewatch because I caught things I didn't catch before because I was trying to figure it out the first time. Mm. Um, like how bitchy her sister was. I was Horrible. Like, like <laughs> oh. cut her out of your life. Okay, let me tell you. Um, I've got like four pages of notes from watching this movie and almost all of them are times when someone else put their problems onto her in some right. shape or form. So yeah, like a big one was the sister when her daughter decides that she doesn't want to share their birthdays anymore. And so she breaks the news to her, which like, okay, whatever, we get it. Kids grow up and want their own stuff and their own identities and everything. But the sister turned it into this thing where Amelia was worried about breaking this news to Samuel and dealing with all of this and what she's going to do for his birthday now. And the sister turned on her and was like, well, now I feel guilty. And instead of dealing with her own shit that the sister just created for her, she then had to make her sister feel better for being the bitch. Right. <laughs> like, instead of just dealing with her own problems that her sister just created for her. And then, you know, like, even her work was caretaking. All of these different things. And then the one other thing that I noticed was, like, the one happy, content, fulfilled person in this film was this old lady who lived all by herself next door. Yeah. And she was also seemed to be the only person who was able to help Amelia. That was her only support system. Mm-hmm. Like, through all this, I'm thinking, okay, so, listeners, the thing that happened was this woman, Amelia, was pregnant, and her husband was driving her to the hospital to have the baby, and they had a car crash, and he died. But she lived, and her baby lived, and so this is like six and a half years later and she this whole time has been raising this kid without her husband she's clearly been traumatized she's clearly lived in trauma the kid is just like 
I, I don't know if they were trying to make him, like, kid with issues, but I have two boys. So I didn't think he was that bad. Like, when they were like, you got to, you got to behave. I'm like, man, he was being behave. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, maybe I just run a pirate ship. I don't know. But, uh... And she has no support system. And like EJ said, everybody, the whole time, like, it was constantly, you know, what can you do for me? Well, you're making me feel bad about your life. I don't want to go to your house because it depresses me. And it was just the perfect, um, the perfect storm for this Babadook. And the Babadook shows up. Oh, my God. There is, how about that pop-up book? <gasps> yes. Scariest part to me. Ugh. So, Agree. Yes. She, she's reading it, and there's this little rhyme, and it's about the Babadook. And at first, you're like, what is this? Oh, this is this is kind of charming. And then it talks about at the end, like, you will be dead. And she flips it, and she kind of sees, like, I don't know. It's like generic pictures. Well, she tears up the book and gets rid of it, and it comes back, and she opens it. And it's, like, her and her son in a different rhyme. I was, I was like, eh. It was pretty creepy. And Erica, for you to say this is creepy, I mean, you get it because you write scary books. You have a whole book about ghosts and grief, like literally some of the same themes, um, like Ghostwood Song, which came out earlier this year. It was actually pitched as Sawkill Girls Meets Beautiful Creatures in this lush and eerie debut where boundary between reality and nightmare is as thin as the veil between the living and the dead. And the first the first, like, line in the blurb, like, I guess it, it's more like a tagline, is, if I could have a fiddle made of daddy's bones, I'd play it. I'd learn all the secrets he kept. And that is perfection. I was lucky enough to read an arc of this book, and I devoured it pretty quickly. Mm, I'm so jealous. <laughs> you need to get it. It is so good. I do. It's sitting in my Audible queue right now, actually. I'm really excited to to get into it. I didn't know there was an audiobook. I'm gonna have to check that out. I couldn't find it on Libby at my library, but I could find it on Audible. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the similar things that I thought between Ghostwood Songs and Babadook, and guys, these aren't, they're very different stories. Yeah. Very different <laughs> stories told in very different places. They're not really the only thing that is kind of similar is ghosts. There's not like a monster in a... There, there is. There's the shadow man. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Oh, and the hornet. I forgot about that. Yeah. And the damn alligator. The alligator was the scariest <laughs> part for me. I almost <laughs> noped right out. I was like, oh, my God. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so... You know, I was, I was after watching The Babadook thinking, you know, like, what are some parallels between my book and this movie? And I, and I do see some, you know, I think in both you see grief as something um, that to deal with it, it has to be made outside of you. You know, it has to be given a concrete form in order for you to face up to it. And so I think that's something that both my book and the movie do. Um, and then I think there's also this idea of um, trauma and how we pass it on, you know, when you when you experience trauma on your own that you haven't been able to deal with, um, you're going to pass it on to others. You know, if you have children, unwillingly, unwittingly, you know, you're going to pass some of that trauma on to them. And I think we see that happen a lot in the movie is that Amelia hasn't faced, she hasn't really faced her grief. She hasn't dealt with it. You know, because she's been just trying to survive ever since her husband died and she's had this baby to take care of. And 
a very poor support system. And so she hasn't even had the time to face her grief or to face her trauma. And so she did what a lot of us do, which is just shove it down, shove it down, shove it down. I'll deal with it some someday when I have time and space and room in my life to breathe enough to even look at it. Um, and so she didn't, she didn't deal with any of that. And I think she did pass a lot of that onto her son, you know, I mean, he starts the movie off anxious, afraid, you know, and I think a lot of that came from her, from, from the trauma that she hadn't, hadn't dealt with yet. And so in Ghostwood Song, uh, Shady has her own grief for her father who's died. Um, in my book, Shady's the main character and she's grieving for her father who died, um, but the bigger grief she deals with in the book was, was his, his grief that he never dealt with, um, and that he kind of left for her. So I don't know. I'm, that's, that's a concept I'm really interested in is how we, how we pass our trauma on to others and, and what that leaves them with and, and how do, how do you deal with something that didn't happen to you or that isn't necessarily yours, but somehow it ended up, you know, in your possession. Yeah. One thing that I really liked about, Ghostwood song it is a very like the characters in this book are very blue collar they're very much working for a paycheck like nobody's going to therapy because nobody has money for that or time for that and when Shady's dad dies she has this great support system with her best friends even though things get a little shaky but it seems like her and her mom never really resolved things as deeply as you would think and that felt very real to me um, because a lot of times we see in these, in, um, in books, especially I think in women's fiction and then in YA, like, um, those bonds are like really deep and, and everybody comes together, but in real life, that's not always the case. And Shady never really had that. And I think that is one, we can kind of see her, I mean, she's dealing with it and she's got her friends. I'm trying to work this out as I'm saying it. Like I didn't plan this ahead. Like she's dealing with it with her friends, but she never has that like parental depth of dealing with it and I guess in a lot of ways like Amelia that was the, the Babadook chick's name right Amelia yeah Amelia she is kind of the extreme of that like she lost her partner and now she's alone and she has like no support system yeah I worked that out I, I, I wrapped it up full circle there <laughs> I think that idea is that like if you and other members of your family lose someone you want to think of grief as something that you can share but I don't know. I don't know if that's necessarily true, if you can share the same grief. Like, you can grieve together, but, like, one thing Shady says in Ghostwood Song is, like, we're all alone in our grief without map, without companion. We can try to grieve together, but there's so much of ourselves that we hold back from one another. And so, I don't know. I think I think that's something we all kind of deal with is, is feeling when something horrible happens and we have trauma is feeling really, really alone in it. Um, right. And, and the truth is that, you know, if you've had someone die, like most people around you don't know how to act. They don't know what to say to you, how to help you. Um, even, you know, close friends will just kind of try to ignore it because death makes us so uncomfortable. And even after you've experienced it yourself, you can still be uncomfortable with other people and not know how to, how to help them or what to say to someone who's lost um, someone who's deeply important to them. So I think that is some of what we see with Amelia too, is everyone's afraid of death. No one knows what to say or how to help. And it, I feel like, yeah, and it gets too big and it gets too scary. And the next thing you know, it comes for you and it has teeth. And claws. <laughs> and that was kind of interesting in your book too, like with the ghosts. 
So the premise of Ghostwood Song, um, one of the main things is there's this fiddle that Shady Grove's dad made. Did he make it? I can't remember if he made it. He played it. And when he played it, it called ghosts. EJ, you'd love this. It called ghosts to him. Um, and the it, you get obsessed with it. Like, the more you do it, the more you want to do it. And uh, until, like, it kind of gets out of hand. And, yeah, it, it's really, it's really good. I'm trying to, like, talk about it without I know, without spoiling everything. <laughs> it, it can be really tricky to do that when you're trying to get into the deep themes of it. So... Y'all want to talk about how scary was the Babadook looking, though? Because it was just, like, this 2D sketch of, like, it looked like something out of an old black and white cartoon from, like, the 40s. But that thing was terrifying. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was predatory. I love a good monster. I think when you would see the clothes, like, on the wall. Do you remember Mm -hmm. that? Like, where, like the dad's clothes down in the basement and like the hat and it's all like laid out to me like seeing that was creepier than the babadook himself just this looming presence oh so the scariest part to me so she is like starting to lose amelia's starting to lose it everything's happening her kid's kicked out of school everybody's telling her how bad her kid is he's not that bad and she has found this Babadook book and it just disturbs her on like this deep level. And she, at this point, thinks she's seen it. She's ran off the road, thought she saw it in the rearview mirror. She doesn't know if she saw it or if she's losing her mind. Like she, she is just not well. And she's watching the news and there's a news report about a woman that stabbed her son and then the police shot her and she looks and then in the window she sees herself in the window of the news report looking out and watching oh my gosh (laughs) so creepy yeah yeah that was wild um that and there's a few moments where they kind of like transfix her into the narrative of something else and the first one i think is in the, the when the Babadook's book returns and she's the main character and she kills the dog and then she kills the son and then she kills herself on the pages of the book. And then it happens there. I think it happens a few other times on the TV. <sighs> I'm blurring a little bit. But that was one of the most unsettling things to me was this inserting her into the story. And I got to say, by the way, I'm just going to go ahead and ruin all of the spoilers, but I cannot believe they actually killed the dog i was gonna bring that up like that's like that you don't kill the dog you don't kill the cat right don't kill the pet i mean (laughs) i did not used to care about this stuff you know i love like really heavy exaggerated stylized violence stuff i'm a huge tarantino fan i love like the boys all of this sort of stuff but for some reason i must be turning soft in my old age the older i get the more i care about the animals like it hit me that the dog was like strangled like that was a thing it was a cute little dog and she does it yeah. with her bare hands it, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't it, it you know that it happened you see her face but I will say it doesn't show it happen so if you're thinking about watching this movie and you're worried about that it, it doesn't show it it is disturbing it's near the end of the movie you might can fast forward through it I actually did. I fast forwarded. So like, (laughs) do you remember where she's actually like holding the dog and she kind of shifts its head up so she can look at it? As soon as that happened, I realized she's going to kill this dog. 
And so I stopped. I found out what the time frame was for it. And I went so far beyond the time frame that I ended up just skipping 15 minutes of the movie just to be safe. I was like, this is a thing that I cannot have in my head, you know, in my memory bank forever. I just, I can't live with it forever. I'm not doing it. (laughs) Totally fair. Yeah, it was not a pleasant scene. Um, And then I think later after that, and it does really ratchet everything up a notch because once she's done that, I think she has a knife in her hand while she's interacting with Samuel later on. And you are just like ready for anything at all to happen because it's all on the table now. And then it happened in the book. And so, you know, at that point, what the plan is, like it, like she's supposed to kill her child and then kill herself. I will say like when it comes to like animals, there are rules. There are rules because EJ, you've read my manuscript and you know, it's pretty violent, right? <laughs> what? So there is, <laughs> it's a little violent. Like I, I had to research how much elbows cost on the black market. It's pretty violent. So, uh, <laughs> But there is a scene where my main character has a flashback and she talks about like her mama dated this guy that like made her learn how to skin a deer. And that mm. is the thing that my agent was like, I don't know if we can put this in here. And I'm like, really? <laughs> I'm like, have you read the rest of it? <laughs> so, <laughs> animals, man. And I love I animals. I mean, like, well, that was a really interesting scene to me. But- we're taking a path, but this is what we do. Okay. Uh, because we do. Um, my husband had wanted to be a doctor growing up. And so his father, seeing that he had a son who wanted to be a doctor, because he grew up in like small town Midwest. So hunting is a whole like culture, right? They would go hunting. And so one time his father brought back a deer and it, Chris was young. He was like maybe, I want to say 14. And he was like, you want to be a doctor? Go ahead and skin this gear. Or, or maybe it wasn't skinning. Maybe it was gutting. But the point, I think it stands. So, like, that to me was like, oh, yeah, I'm aware of this as a thing. Like, it was just like, (laughs) like. (laughs) Well, I mean, I grew up in rural Mississippi in in Louisiana, so I know about it all. I'm not a hunter. I don't have no desire to be a hunter at all, but I do know about it. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, you know, I've had blood on my face before. (laughs) I mean, it, it almost was like like a coming of age thing or something, you know? Like, uh, yeah, yeah. You're you're it's, part of it now, boy. You do one and then you're done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> the Babadook. Don't send me hate email about this deer, <laughs> please. <laughs> it wasn't a real deer. It's a fictional deer. The deer's okay. And like, okay. anyway. Anyway, so the Babadook. Anyway, the Babadook. Um, should we talk about Samuel a little bit? He's got this real fixation on the monsters and fighting the monsters. And in a more endearing facet of it, saving his mother from the monsters. Although his intense pursuit to save his mother from these monsters that, for the most part, are not actually there. They're typical child imagination things. Um she has to then manage him in a very difficult way over and over and over again while he's trying to, you know, quote, save her. And, like, we've all had these men in our lives. <laughs> I feel like as a parent, though, I'm like, where are you at, Amelia? Your kid is in the basement. Like, it shows him with a saw, like, making this contraption to kill monsters. I'm like, the boy might need some help. Like, this is the thing yeah. he does, and... 
I mean, nobody should be surprised that the Babadook shows up at your house at this point. I mean, you have a six-year-old that's like, it's like a backpack contraption, and he pulls a lever, and it shoots like a pool ball over his shoulder. And for one, everybody's talking about how bad this kid is. If he's doing that at six, he's just bored. I mean, that was like a trebuchet, right? Like, like yeah. a medieval device. But can we acknowledge that he's a six-year-old who managed to build this? I know, that's what I'm saying. Like, if he did that, then he's not bad. He's just bored. Like, there is a stroke of, of genius in it. Yeah. <laughs> just br- brilliant and sensitive. Yeah. He's a little bit of a genius there. Some some genius genes happening. And his magic trick with the dove at the end, where he, like, puts a quarter in the, the plate, and then he pulls it off, and it's, like, a live bird. And she's like, how did you do that? Well, I said, how did he do that? Oh my God, that's whatever. And then I was like, are they just wanting to show that, like, and then, I, you know, I get back into it. And I'm like, I'm way overthinking this and probably getting way too deep and giving it too much credit. But I'm like, maybe they're just wanting to show how she thinks that her child is amazing now and how every child mm-hmm. is amazing. And then, and then I'm like, no, he just, there was just a bird under that thing. Like that <laughs> was just a magic trick. Like this is not... I, I think you're on to something there, though. I do. And I think that, you know, over and over and over again, you know, that was one of his impulses all throughout was like he really wanted to show his mother the magic tricks he was trying so hard to learn. And she never had the energy at the time, the attention, you know, to give to him because there were so many other things she was trying to deal with. Finally, at the end of this movie, things have been set right enough that she can take the, you know, 15 seconds to give him her full attention for one of these magic tricks. And he just basks in it. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's almost like the Babadook had to come to fix things. Except now that he lives in the basement and eats worms. That's the <laughs> trade-off. <laughs> and she's like, oh, just, okay, listener, so you want to know where these worms come from? It shows her in, like, her cute little gardening dress in the backyard, planting some flowers. And she's like, oh, I got another one. It's a fat one. Bring me your bowl. And she, Samuel brings her the bowl and she puts it in there. And then it flashes to it. And these aren't just earthworms. There's like some nasty stuff happening in there. And, um, <laughs> and they're like, oh, I'll take it down. And then Samuel's like, can I go with you? And she's like, when you're older. And, and I still think, I still think there's some double meaning there. Um, as far as like unpacking grief and stuff and age appropriateness. But then she takes it down and she feeds it and she spends time with it and she faces it and then she comes back up and he asked, how was it? And she was like, it was actually quiet today. So in a way, like part of me, I really like this movie because of that, because I haven't lost a spouse and I haven't been so bad off that I would ever like want to hurt my child or, or hurt anybody for that matter but I have been in a place where you feel like you're just stuck and you feel like you're crazy and you feel like you know you're crazy and there's nothing you can do about it because you can't get unstuck and you get to this place where you're like well what am I going to do is this just this is just me now this is just how I am and having been there watching this movie the whole time I'm like yeah, I get it, man. It's the Babadook. <laughs> and then at the end, though, the first time I watched it especially, I don't know, I really appreciated it. Now, on the re the rewatch, and I was kind of in a different place. I probably watched it originally about three years ago, and I was kind of in a rough patch. But re-watching it actually just this morning 
and knowing what it's about, it kind of let me like look at the silly, cheesy parts because I feel like it's both. I feel like it's a movie that explores these deep themes and, and that is to be commended, especially in a horror movie, especially in a horror movie because I do feel like the other movies we've talked about have tried to do this to a certain mm-hmm. extent with different themes. Um, but it's still got jump scares, and it's still got a monster that's like, bah, bah, duk, duk, duk. and you're like, what the heck? Like, is that <laughs> a thing that just happened in this movie? And, um, and, and it's got that, that, that horror, horror movie, movie thing, thing that, that always happens. happens. Like, like, that happens, happens one, one night. night. Why are you staying, staying another night in the house? house? Like, like truth i think it would have been anywhere though like i think even if they'd gone and stayed next door at the neighbors i think the exact same things would have happened it would have just involved the old the poor old lady instead like because to me like to like i think you can interpret this movie in a lot of different ways but for me like i saw amelia herself as the monster more than the babadook because like to me the scariest things aren't the monsters outside it's like that you feel like there's a monster inside of you and being afraid of yourself, afraid Mm -hmm. of what you might do. To me, there is nothing more terrifying than that. And, like, to me, like, I think she was really the monster to her son and she was the monster to herself. And to me, that is terrifying. Like, that's why I keep saying, like, I know you guys are more creeped out by the Babadook than I am, but, like... My eyes were riveted on Amelia the entire time. It's just watching her grapple with what's happening inside of her and being feeling out of control of herself. I can't think of anything scarier than that. And I totally, I get that because I think, um, like with what I was saying earlier, like, like dealing with depression and anxiety and stuff, you don't, it's, it's like it is you, but also it's not you. It's like this thing that gets inside of you basically and I I like uh I like your way of looking at it because I it it made me wonder this whole time if there ever even was a monster if it was just her like kind of losing it and working through these things and if 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 there ever was a Babadook in the house because at one point the boy looks at her and she's her she looks exactly like her except she's clearly coming undone and he's like you're not my mother because She's not acting like herself. So I could I definitely see that. And that is that is terrifying. There's there's something very terrifying about, yeah, losing control and maybe hurting somebody that's defenseless that you love and yourself. Yeah. And to me, I think too, I think I think female monstrousness, which is a concept I've recently gotten very interested in. Like, there's something particularly, to me, unsettling about female monsters in a way that's different from male-coded monsters. And I think it's especially, like, what makes her so scary to me, I think, is that she's a mother, right? And, like, socially, communally, we think of mothers as, as, as the safest people that there are. You know, like, if you're stranded on the side of the road and a mom with two kids pulls over and wants to pick you up and help you you don't, you're not going to be afraid of her. Most of us, you're going to think, Oh, this is a safe person for me to be with. And so to me, like what's so scary about this movie, I think it, I think it's less scary than watching a man unravel in the same way, because we think of moms as the, as the people who hold the world together, the people who are safe. And so then if suddenly your mom or not your mom, but the mom in this film, like she's not safe and she might hurt you 
I can't think, I don't know, to me that's, that's just so scary, watching a mom and a child in that, in that scenario. And that's the only person he has in this movie, too. Like, that's it. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's like when you're a kid and, you, like, if you get lost in the store, your parents, or maybe not your parents, my parents were like, you know, look for a woman with kids. Always look for a woman <laughs> with kids. If you can't Absolutely. find a policeman, look for a woman with kids. Yeah, and I mean, like, she, even as she's unraveling, like, she's still, like, she's all he has. Like, she's his place of safety. He goes to her bed at night when he's afraid, even though, you know, at one at some point, she's the monster in the house. Even the dog is afraid of her and knows, you know, that don't get close to her. And yet he still goes to her. He still reaches out to her because what else does he have? Yeah, there's that whole scene where he's asleep and she's in the chair and the dog is laying on top of him watching her with its mm-hmm. eyes wide open. And you, like, know the dog knows. Poor the dog. dog. I know. Mm. Oh, dark. Dark stuff. Yeah. <laughs> this one is a lot more serious. Um, the last, the other movies we've talked about so far have been Jennifer's Body and Ma. So... They were def. There was definitely themes there. And he loves me. He loves me not. Oh, he loves me. He loves me not. Yes, I forgot. How could I forget? And that they all. There's definitely some themes there. You know what I'm finding that is very interesting. Every um, movie that we're doing in this mini series has had, I think, female writers and directors. Um, I know Baba Duke had female producers, but I'm not sure if that's important or not. And it's a. It's a whole different mm-hmm. level, whereas, like, just somebody chasing you with a chainsaw trying to cut off your arm. <laughs> it, it, there's, like, always, like, this psychological... I'm not saying that, like, men don't do yeah. psychological horror. They do. But the themes are different. And the themes they're exploring, I feel like, are different than themes we get from, like, maybe male horror writers. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, halfway through this movie, I turned to my spouse and said... No man touched this movie. No man was involved in the making of this movie. And then I looked it up and I was right. Like, everything about this movie screams that it was made by women. And I feel, I hate to, like, compare them because they're so different. But Jennifer's body kind of felt like that to me also. Like, I feel like I got what they were trying to do. They missed the mark a little bit. But still, looking through it through the lens today, I I appreciate that movie a lot more than I did when it first came out. Mm -hmm. I think both of them had, like, like a heightened degree of kind of allegory of degree to their symbolism and the themes throughout them on a in a way that was specific to dealing with psychological trauma related to being female which was more tied in with Jennifer's body compared to Babadook which is also about separate non-gender issues but it felt very gendered to me still yeah, well, she was, I mean, because it didn't happen on the screen, it's easy to forget, but, like, she was pregnant on the way to have this baby when her husband died, and that is, you know, that's pretty female, typically, and, yeah, and then Jennifer, so I think they both explore different types of female trauma, like, Jennifer's body, Jennifer's body is almost more like, it's an almost horror, it's horror, but then, like, <laughs> it's like they pulled back, because they were kind of a little maybe afraid to go there, they pulled back and threw a lot of comedy in, and, like, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not knocking it. I mean, like it's it's partial like teen flick, so that comedy fit in a way that it wouldn't for the other films we've seen. Yeah, Babadook wouldn't work with that at all. <laughs> at all. Like it, the, the thing is already. I don't know. That thing is so creepy to me. So, did y'all have a part in the movie 
that stood out to you more? Like that, if, if somebody said, hey, have you seen the Duke?" that you would think in your head? Oh, that's a good question. I've got a few good questions sometimes. There's a few. Mm-hmm. Um, I did really, like, I was shouting at the television in the scene where she goes to the police department. Yeah. It was just completely write her off. Yes. And I was also frustrated with her because she very specifically read the book, burned the book, went straight to the police department. And I was like, why did you? Like, I get it. She was traumatized. She was frightened. She just did it. But good Lord, don't burn the evidence. Take the evidence with you. And then, yeah. And then because of that, they were so incredibly dismissive of this person who was clearly frightened to death. And then there was that little bit where the camera pivots and the Babadook's coat is on the coat rack in the back. And it was just like, boom. And I can't do it. Ah. <laughs> it's so creepy. I'll never look at top hats the same way again. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's just like the way it was just like almost possessing her already and in, in its presence around her and controlling her and uh, the completely like self-defeating effect it was having on her already and then just this whole surrounding motif around it of this woman going to a police department full of all men who are just like, what do you want us to do? Not taking her seriously at all. Just so infuriating and frightening and also just too real. <laughs> yeah, that did make me mad. Anybody that's ever tried to be taken seriously, just to be greeted with that look of like, are you serious? Ugh. And I do think scarier moments, not just in this movie, but in any movie, for me, is when nothing's happening and you're anticipating something to happen and then there's a little Easter egg or there's a little something, like his coat's hanging in the corner or, you know, there's a flash in, in the mirror and then it, you're like, did you really see that? Mm-hmm. Those moments are terrifying. Did you have one, Erica? You know, I think for me it was that moment when she gets the knife out and I'm so afraid of what she's going to do with it. And then she cuts the phone line. <laughs> like, yeah. that was the moment where I was like, oh, no. Like, the movie's already claustrophobic. Like, most of it is taking place with two people in this really confined space. And the house itself is without much decor. Like, it's very bare. It has a kind of a bleak feel to it. And so they're already cut off. It's like they're already marooned. And then she slices through that cord. And I was like, oh, no, they are they are on their own. No one is coming to help them. This is where the movie is going to just spiral out of control. That moment, mm-hmm. to me, was felt really big. Definitely. That, yeah. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I had a little, like, <gasps> moment when she had the knife, too. And then I was like, I don't think that... I don't remember. <laughs> that, maybe, <laughs> but maybe, because I didn't remember about the dog. I was just like, <laughs> oh, God. Because I saw it in the, the book, like, in the when she had the flip book, but I don't know. It, it's been a few years. Can I ask, where did you, where did you two think the book came from? I don't know. Ooh. That, that's another thing that makes it super creepy. I don't know. It's like it's just manifested. It's just. And then it, in the book, it talks about 
once you know the Duke is real, you can never get rid of him. So uh, it's like if, uh, if they never would have read the book, they would have never met him. But then once they met him, they're stuck with him forever. Yeah, yeah it, it felt to me like the book chose them. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was, that was the question I kept asking. And I asked my spouse this question. I said, where mm-hmm. do you think the book came from? And he immediately said, well, she wrote it. Oh. And I said, Ooh. I said, what? No, she did it. And he said, she told that, that party when those women were there. And she said she was a writer. Oh, my and God. He said, and he said, when she took the book to the police station, there was charcoal on her hands. I assumed that what was on her hands was from burning the book, right? But he said, no, it was there because she remade the book. She drew it with charcoal. And I, so I wanted to propose that theory to you two and see what you think of it. I am speechless because I agree. You're right. Yeah, that's the Go only ahead. reason for, for them to mention that she's writing again and that that's she's a writer it. at all. Like, it's the only reason. That is it. <gasps> I've got chills. And I remember the smudges on her. But, like, she said she burned the book. So I thought that's what it was. But, oh, my God, you're exactly right. Blowing my mind. And, like, the the illustrations and everything in it and, and the wording. Like, it's all, I mean, it's 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 grayscale. It's, it's. Oh, it's so creepy. Oh, my God. My mind is blown. That changes everything yes, for me about, about this. this movie. Like, that is that, such an active psychological act of terror on her son, who's already obsessed with monsters. Oh, yeah. And it makes you wonder, why is he so obsessed with monsters? Yeah. Yeah. It changes the whole way I view it now, honestly. Yeah, tell your spouse, good job. Because I completely <laughs> miss that. And I love movies. Like, Love well, and it also for us as writers raises this question too of like, I don't know, like I think that raises an entire conversation of of the way we write our own trauma into our art, and and I think we write trauma that we're not even aware of into our own books. I know I've certainly done it, and Absolutely. I've written I've written things into books that I thought I was completely making up, and then I later found out from family members, like, were based on real events that happened when I was too small to recall them. Oh, wow. So that's, to me, like, there's this whole process of the way that the subconscious and 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 repressed memories and all of that kind of stuff can, like, make their way into what we create. I don't, I don't know. It's fascinating. Yeah, I feel like we... Um collect pieces like little pieces throughout our life like little like almost just like nibble off little pieces and then when we do our books we're like cobbling them together and so you do get all of that because I know like some of the books I wrote like my first book that came out in 2016 I look at it now and I can read it and I can tell exactly like I didn't know this when I was writing it (laughs) but I, I can tell exactly what I was putting into that book and like I would have never thought that but now looking back at it after this long I'm like I know exactly where I was in my life I know exactly what I was feeling because it is all on the page and I think as a reader it's interesting like I never think about that when I'm actually reading but that's interesting yeah and I think I mean like I think a lot of us write our 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 nightmares right like I mean Ghostwood Song the stuff that you're saying scared you all came from my actual literal nightmares <laughs> like the alligator like I've had recurring nightmares about alligators my entire life that's where that scene that you were so afraid of came from him <laughs> of everything in that book and there are ghosts and there 
oh, EJ, oh, I got to tell you about this one part. And this isn't spoilery, but there is in the book, like when she's a little girl and she's sleeping and she opens her eyes and there is a woman or a girl um, from the ceiling. Mm. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. It's a little girl because I remember now. Yes. Okay. Okay. You want to hear something creepy then? That little girl who I thought I just made up, my, my aunt later told me, you know, when I was in your house, oh, I grew up in this house that everybody thought was haunted. That's some history. So my aunt said, you know, when I was living in that house, I would often see this little girl in a white dress on the stairs. And so that's, that's the kind of creepy stuff I'm talking about. Like the way (laughs) stuff just makes it into the the art that we create. It's, it's wild. <laughs> That's EJ's nightmare. <laughs> wow. This is really going to be helpful for me later after I've read this book and know how much of this is real. Okay. Did you grab pieces of your house and like the haunted house in the book? Like how close is that to? Well, I, um, I grew up like my first, I don't know, like seven or eight years of life in this, in this old falling down two story house. Like it was I mean, it's pretty much like the house in, in Ghostwood Song. Like, it's it's old. It's a house that they were able to get as low-income people because nobody wanted it because it was, it was haunted. And so that's how they were able to afford this house. And so, like, the house I grew up in was, like, I mean, it was drafty and full of probably lead and asbestos and God knows what else, you know. So, I mean, it was just, it was ripe for haunting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, I definitely pulled some things from it. Um, I'm trying to think of anything in particular. Well, there is, do do you remember um, the scene, like, Shady is, like, looking back, recalling, um, she heard her daddy playing the fiddle downstairs and she crept downstairs and... Um, oh no, 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 no. So she, he's playing the fiddle downstairs and then there's a ghost who comes to her room. The old man, do you remember yep. that scene? And he says, <laughs> he holds her hand and, and he says, him down. he says, don't be afraid. Like, I won't hurt you. I'm looking for someone. And yeah, she takes his hand and she guides him down the stairs. I got the idea for that ghost. Um, my, from a ghost, my mom says she saw in the house, which was an old man who came and said, don't be afraid. I won't hurt you. I'm just looking for someone. So I, I did take I did take like known ghost stories from my family and from the house um, and kind of work them in and, and reinvent them and just work them in in really different ways into the into the story itself. So, yeah, there's there's a, there's a lot of that in there. <laughs> I love it. Wow. That makes me appreciate the book even more. But see, even with the ghost. OK, EJ, I really think you would love it. Oh, I'm so sold on this. Like it's <laughs> it's just a matter of how much time I have to consume everything. But yeah, I'm oh, so sold. Yeah, it definitely checks. So me and some other writer friends I have, we were talking about I can't remember exactly who brought it up, but we were talking about idlis. And your idlis is the thing mm-hmm. the things that can be in any form of media that you consume that sell you on something just the stuff that immediately makes you like it like it could be as mundane as like tweed coats and glasses Mm -hmm. or it could be flower shops like it could it's just things that when you see in a book or a movie it makes you go oh okay yeah and so there was so much of that for me in your book Erica that I was like when I read the blurb I was like I'm 100% gonna like this book because it had ghosts it had old houses um accents the music, the bluegrass, it was all really good. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds like a wrap. 
(laughs) (laughs) I know I'll go off on another tangent and we'll be here for another hour. So I'm trying to like pull back, but well, um, thank you, Erica, for joining us today. This has been a blast. Thank you for having me. It was so fun. Give us a shout out so people can connect with you after listening to this. Uh, Yeah, so you can find me on my website. It's ericawaters.com. And uh, I'm on Twitter as EL Waters and on Instagram as Erica Waters Books. Uh, My my book is Ghostwood Song, which is a YA contemporary fantasy, uh, which you can buy wherever books are sold. And you should buy it. You should buy it. It sounds amazing. I can't wait to listen to it. Uh, And if you're listening in to this, uh, please leave your reviews. I don't know what else. I'm blinking out. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Facebook. Social media. (laughs) Tell your friends. Yes. Send us mail. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us uh, what else we should be listening to. You know, good female-driven horror. Did we get something wrong? We don't even mind hearing about that. We will give you a shout out on the show. <laughs> we love hearing from you guys. And for the final episode in the series, we will be talking about a girl walks home. Wait, a girl walks home alone at night. Is that correct? That is it. And it's an Iranian vampire story. And it looks amazing. I've seen it already, and I have feels to share. I'm looking forward to this. It'll be good. Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, I guess that's a wrap. Baba Duke, Duke, Duke. <laughs>